Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. Tom Salemi here. Welcome back. This is the OIS Podcast. This is episode 212, but we're uh, considering this a little bonus episode for you. It's a presentation from our OIS at SECO event, which happened last week on February 21st in New Orleans. It was the final discussion of the day. It's called Industry Leaders Speaking Out on the Optometric Channel. It features Joseph Berady of Johnson & Johnson, Bob Dempsey of Takeda, Dave Gibson of Allergan, Angelo Rago of Carl Zeiss Meditech, and Cal Roberts of Bosch & Lomb. And it's moderated by our very own Emmett Cunningham, of course, founding co-chair of OIS. We had a uh, terrific time in New Orleans. I was not able to attend, so it was great to, to be able to listen to this discussion. And I hope you enjoy it as well. Don't forget, we have OIS at ASCRS coming up on May 2nd in San Diego. Go to OIS.net for more information. You can also check out the agenda for OIS at SECO. You'll have all the titles for the participants of this discussion. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Now I'd like to have our panelists, whose photographs you see here, introduce themselves. Just say who you are, what company you're with, some of you already have, and, and um, why you're with this meeting. Why is your company interested in optometry? Well, uh, so I'm Cal Roberts um, from Bausch and Lomb. And uh, Bausch and Lomb is the world's most integrated eye company. So in terms of we are the only one who has a fully integrated pharma division, surgical division, vision care division, and consumer division. And what's interesting for optometry is no matter how you practice optometry, whether you're on the vision side, whether you're on the medical side, or whether you're integrated into a surgical practice, the Bausch & Lomb products are integral to the way that you practice. Okay, very good. Uh, Dave Gibson, uh, 19 years with Allergan, and the last 10 years uh, have been really focused on uh, uh, partnering with optometry, helping uh, optometry grow, uh, bringing new new uh, programs to optometry, really helping to develop the medical side of a practice. And the thing that I think is most exciting uh, to me in working with optometry is, is really to see the growth, uh, just absolutely massive amounts of growth. Back when I started 10 years ago, uh, optometry as a whole was uh, doing about maybe 600,000, or excuse me, $600 million in therapeutics across all classes. And it, uh, optometry just passed $3 billion, $3 billion in therapeutics. So just to see this growth over a fairly, fairly short period of time is really exciting. And frankly, the, the areas that we're focused on, which is glaucoma, dry eye, and presbyopia, is just central, central to optometry. And optometry really should own these uh, particular disease states. Joe, before you comment, let me just ask for a single number. Cal, on your medical business and then on your medical business as well, what percent is optometry, roughly? Great. So on the so on the pharma division, you know, as, as you've heard with with most of the companies, sixty percent. Sixty percent. Okay. It's by optometry. Sixty percent. Yeah, it. Uh, I'd say from a therapeutic, so you're taking a retina out and taking uh, the surgical piece with the, with a Zen out, uh, it's uh, roughly forty percent. Okay. Joe, yeah. introduce yourself and then give us the number. Okay, I'm Joe Berrett. I'm with uh, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and optometry is crucial, really, to our, our organization, uh, as is ophthalmology. 
but optometry plays a critical role in our in our vision care business, uh, our consumer product business, certainly in the ocular surface uh, space that, that uh, we play in. And, and that number, I, I do know, so about of, of all the um, treatments for ocular surface disease, so using lipoflow, it's about 50-50 in optometry and ophthalmology. So it's, it's almost an exact even split and the number of patients per month about even. Um, and then we have surgical products as well. So optometry plays a critical role, certainly in the vision care side with our, our contact lenses all the way through ocular surface. And then it starts to transition more to uh, ophthalmology as we get into the IOL space and the, and the, uh, and the surgical vision uh, business. So that, that's Johnson John. Hello, welcome. Uh, Robert Dempsey, formerly of Shire, now of Decatur. I'm head of the uh, Global Ophthalmics franchise. And, uh, you know, five years ago at this meeting, we made a, a big bet, Emmett, that we would be a, a major player in the optometric space when we were launching the franchise. And I think as I, as I sit here today and I was looking at the numbers coming down on a plane, um, it's about 60% of our prescribers are, uh, are optometry. Uh, the yield from a financial perspective is, is a little bit favored towards ophthalmology, but when you look at uh, 40,000 optometrists in the U.S., and we've had 25,000 put pen to paper or call in a script, whatever, I think truly shows that uh, that bet paid off. So it's, uh, it, it's amazing, you know, the, the, the success of Zyger has been driven by by the optometric community. So we have 40 to 60% of the drug businesses uh, optometric. So, Angelo? Uh, Angelo Rago, head of ophthalmic diagnostics at Zeiss. Um, I'll follow Cal's lead. We're the largest ophthalmic diagnostic company in the world, if you're just wondering. And uh, since you want a number, Emmett, I'll use TopCon's measurement. I don't know if Greg's around. He used the word massive. Maybe I'll use massive as a number. Uh, but the number is roughly 60% uh, of revenues come from optometry. So the meeting genesis was originally from Paul, who presented this idea to us, Paul Kwaprecki, thought you all would be interested. Now you know how interested the industry is. They want to get in front of you, they want to talk to you, they want to learn from you and hear from you. So that's why this meeting, I think, will be such a big uh, success. Um, let's go to the first question, if we could. Um, and this, some of this is maybe known to the optometrists in the audience. Go next slide, please. Um, but wasn't as known to me, isn't as, as clear to ophthalmologists, for sure, and so I, wanna, I wanted the industry folks to talk about it, how they think about it. Op op optometry has channels, and by channels I mean different styles of practice. Some optometrists practice in a certain way versus another, and it's structured differently. And the use of diagnostics and drugs in particular differ in those different channels. So I'm going to start with Cal, and I'm going to say, how, do, how does Bosch and Loma, how do you think about the channels in optometry, and, and how do you approach them? Do you, do you actually interact with and market to all the channels, or do you focus on certain channels because they're, frankly, more profitable and more interested in what you have to offer? Yeah, so, so we see three channels among opto optometry. So there is the corporate optometrists, and those are the ones who are working at Pearl Vision and working at Costco, um, and they are primarily on the vision side, which is glasses and, and contact lenses. And so for them, when we go to see them, we're seeing them mostly on that side, so our vision care business is really going in, into that. Then the second, the second group we see are the independent uh, optometrists, and, and they have this combination of vision, but also are getting more and more onto the medical side of practice. And so to them, they're the ones who are actively going 
to and talking to them not only about our consumer business, the average vitamins and for AMD, but also talking to them about Lumify and about redness relief, plus just talking to them about all the therapeutic side. And so our antibiotics, our anti-inflammatories. So they're getting that full presentation of us coming from all our businesses. And then the third group are those optometrists who are embedded in surgical practices. And this is a very key group and a, a group that we are paying more and more attention to because as we look to grow the premium IOL segment of, of our business, who are the gatekeepers here? Who are the doctors who are recommending to the patients that they go for a premium IOL? And often that is the optometrists, either the optometrists embedded the practice or the independent optometrists who are referring in, into this practice. And so there the surgical side of our business is involved along with all the therapeutics on the post-op side. And so that's, so that's for the, the lenses, the non-steroidal, the, the Lodomax, and for the, um, and, and for the antibiotics. And then more and more, this is becoming glaucoma-driven. And so there, when we want to talk about Visalta, we really want to get to the independent doctors and the ones who are really acting as the primary care now more and more for glaucoma. So um, part of the, the purpose of OIS is to talk about the business of innovation and not, not just the clinical care. And so I want to just scratch into the business of that. Do you have to use different reps to go to each of those channels, or is it one rep that covers them all? And how do you think about that? Yeah, so we, so we do have, have different, different representatives. So we do have the vision care representatives who are almost exclusively talking about contact lenses. And so that, that would be one group. And then, and then we do have our more medical representatives who are representing the pharma business. And so they're really talking about glaucoma, they're talking about inflammation, they're talking about antibiotics. And then there's that third group, which are the, the surgical representatives. Uh, and, they're, and they're really talking more on the surgical. So, uh, so it could be, depending on the practice, that the practice would have more than one Bausch & Lomb representative that's in that practice, depending upon what that practice does. Great. So our has been at this for a long time. How do you view it? Same? Different? Uh, a little bit differently. You know, uh, I think sort of the traditional model is, is uh, what Cal sort of addressed, which is looking at uh, optometrists in, in different settings, uh, in with an ophthalmologist, private practice, and in some sort of a retail group setting. And, you know, I think it's, uh, for, for our business, it's a little bit different. Uh, I'm, we're actually agnostic to practice settings. Uh, to, uh, to us, we, we really look at, uh, we're in the therapeutic area, and we look at therapeutic prescribing. Um, you can look at it sort of binary. Uh, it's, you know, they're either prescribing or they're not prescribing, right? And then you can start to segment it down, you know, with high prescribers, uh, medium prescribers, low, and no, right? And similar to the chart that I showed earlier today uh, with the different segmentations, uh, we really don't care where a doctor practices. I know some really uh, high-volume uh, glaucoma doctors that are in a, a commercial retail practice, and that's fantastic, and we certainly want to encourage that, right? Uh, and we, there's, there's a wide range of, of, um, of, of how doctors practice within private practice. So at the end of the day, it's not really where they practice, but it's really how they want to practice and what's their desire to treat medically, uh, what's their attitude, what's their confidence level, and everything we're doing is trying to, to raise the game. Uh, so how do, we, how do we take them to the next level, whether they're at right, new graduates right out of school or experienced doctors that have been practiced for, for 40 years? Like how, do, how, do we, how do we up everybody's game? Bob? 
Yeah, I, I just want to jump in and, and agree 100%. And I think that, you know, what, what uh, Shire and Takeda, what obviously Allergan has done, is really focus on the medical model. And I mean, that's the term that we use. And, and again, independent of where you are, we're going to focus on you, we're going to go see you. But I think what's really interesting from an innovation perspective, Emmett, is you look at the dry eye pipeline, you look at all of these companies that are coming out, well, going to try to come out with programs over the next uh, three, five years, and they're going to follow what Allergan did. They're going to follow what Shire did and really invest tremendously into the optometric channel as they come out with more therapeutics. So I think, you know, we see some of the, the, the players here, and I think if we look down the road, that's how this market is going to evolve. There's still going to be a lot of emphasis on ophthalmology. But going forward, right now, the focus is going to be over the next three to five years, increase investment into the optometric channel. So, Joe and Angelo, we'll start with Angelo. Is it different on the diagnostic side, on the device diagnostic side? Angelo? Uh, for us, because we don't have pharma, we don't, the split is a little easier. We have uh, optometrists that mainly uh, worry about spectacles and contacts. They're handled by a completely separate organization that just does that. Um, if they're in the medical model and they're doing advanced diagnostics, that's covered by one, another, a different organization. And then we have a portfolio of products that both groups carry, which we call routine diagnostics, that either one can introduce to a customer. So it's pretty simple for us because we don't have the diagnostics. So we don't separate a Walmart from a doctor who has a practice on Main Street. It's what they do versus who they're owned by. Yeah, and Johnson & Johnson, you know, it's clearly the surgical products. Uh, we have reps in the OR working uh, directly with them, and that, that's fairly segmented. On the contact lens side, it's pretty agnostic. They, they All three channels are approached by the same reps, and it's uh, treated equally. I think what's interesting is when I joined Tier Science, um, my predecessor did not believe in selling into optometry. So he uh, primarily focused on ophthalmology for the first several years of the company. And um, when I joined, we changed our strategy completely. And sales to optometrists exceeded sales to ophthalmologists in, in the first year I was there. Um, and then eventually leveled out. But there was almost a pent-up demand because we didn't approach that segment at all. So one of the ways that we really ramped up that business is really you know, just approaching the, the, the entire ophthalmic market. Um, equally, with the same reps going into ODs and MDs offices. And since then, it's been also agnostic to channel. So uh, the same rep will go into a retail or an academic or a um, private practice or, or you know, group, group setting where there's ophthalmology and opt optometry. So it's really geographic-based and demand-based. We have plenty of optometrists in retail that raise their hand, say we want to start treating dry eye, and, and uh, same in, in solo practice. So. So we have the Pareto rule, which is this famous 80-20 rule, 80% 80 of anything is done by 20% of people, and you pointed that out earlier. So we have lots and lots of optometrists who are not treating, say, dry eye and, and glaucoma or ocular hypertension. Maybe a proportion of those should be treated. Um, from an industry perspective, what is, what's the most effective way to, to sort of get physicians or eye providers comfortable with treating? when they haven't been historically, and conversely, for someone who hasn't been treating and wants to do it, what, what should they be thinking about doing? So I'll just leave it open. Anybody can comment. How, what do you do to try to get people comfortable, and, and what would you recommend those who want to get comfortable do? It's a, uh, I'll, I'll start off. It's, uh, you know, it's a difficult one. It's, it's, it's something that we all battle with constantly. It's the holy grail, right? How do, how do you get someone to change behavior? 
do something different that they haven't been uh, doing before uh, and get them comfortable with it. So often, I think the number one uh, way that we all utilize is probably peer-to-peer -peer education. So helping uh, doctors uh, listen to their, their peers, understand how they practice, um, obviously become more educated about the technology and, and the pros and cons of, of different techniques. But it, uh, that, that seems to be by and far the, the largest uh, or, or the, the, the thing that's most effective. And then, frankly, you know, our sales folks uh, really do a nice job. Uh, sort of, uh, I think, especially in dry eye, we really expanded the marketplace within dry eye and helped to get uh, doctors more comfortable. But often, it's a confidence level, and it's just get started. Just start, see what happens. If you can find a mentor, someone to help you along, that's really going to be uh, very effective. Yeah, I think that was the point that I was going to make, that we really believe in mentoring. And so the opportunity is to work with a colleague who has been successful in making that transition into the medical model, watch how they do it, and then always start slowly. So start, start with uh, prescribing that probably has the least amount of risks to you until you get comfortable with the complications that are involved, and then, and then keep on progressing from there. Yes, I agree. I mean, it's really it's education. It comes down to where that education is received can be a number of places. Certainly the, the reps from the companies are extraordinarily well-trained and knowledgeable, and I, I think um, add a lot of value and have a consistent presence in those practices. And then the peer-to-peer -peer is a little bit more um, sporadic, but I think um, with the, the amount of credibility when you see a peer who's done it successfully, and, and I think that, that uh, moves the needle a little bit faster. So I think you need both. So Can Joe, I'm going to go to the ne next question, if I may, just because we only have limited time. Um, optometrists who are interested in innovating at any level across the innovation cycle, Joe, you, you've had a varied career, much of it innovative. There, there are famous optometrists who've innovated at every level. We heard about my, myobomian gland disease, I think, from you earlier. Uh, talk to us about what you would recommend to a young or middle-aged uh, optometrist who wants to integrate innovation into their practice. How do they do it? What should they start thinking about? Yeah, I, I think it really comes, uh, it piggybacks perfectly off the last question, and that really comes down to, to number one, educating, uh, education, and really understanding the, the various disease conditions that um, innovation can help support. And it's really the job to be done. Uh, so when you think about what are the needs of your practice and where innovation can help to fill that gap with increasing demand on patient flow and the number of patients needed to be seen. And I think every practice is different. You really have to evaluate where that innovation um, will make an impact on, on your, your outcomes of your patients. And so depending on the type of practice, not every innovation is perfect for every practice. You have to look at workflow. You have to look at you know, the, 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 the uh, conditions that you're typically treating in that, in that practice. So, um, I, I, look, I think um, optometrists have come a long way in integration of technology. I think about when I started practice 25 years ago and the types of technology uh, I was looking at and when I was uh, running sales at Zeiss, introducing OCT technology to so many optometrists and them saying, that's for academia, that's not for my practice. Look at where we are today. That, that was in 2009, by the way, just 10 years ago. And I, I walk into practices today, and OCTs are everywhere. Um, so that's just in one decade. Uh, so I do think that optometrists have done a great job of integrating innovation into their practice and have been great innovators in many of the technologies that we see. And does uh, industry welcome optometry in, in, into a trend? I think so. I think industry, same thing. 25 years ago, I could not get a rep to walk into my office, certainly from a pharma company, even though we had therapeutics 
um, in my state at that time, it was really difficult. Uh, pharmaceutical companies were afraid to send a rep in because they didn't want to upset their 99% of their prescribers, which were ophthalmologists at the time. So where we've come from there till now, you've heard from my uh, fellow panelists here, have done a phenomenal job of transforming that in the industry. Uh, I think a lot of thanks is due to these, these guys here. Um, you know, we have really advanced. But my question was a little different in that many of my ophthalmic colleagues actually want to go into industry. They want to leave practice and go into industry. Are you seeing optometrists doing that as well as a path to innovation? Absolutely. J&J &J alone, we, we have uh, somewhere between 50 or 60 optometrists and ophthalmologists uh, in our company. Um, it, it, and I think we're seeing more and more apply. I'm mentoring several optometry school students who are asking to be in industry. They want to, post-graduation, uh, either do research or they want to do innovation or, um, or, or even be in marketing roles, for that matter. So um, I'm seeing an increase in demand in that. I, I think as more uh, get, get into it and mentor others, um, I'm definitely seeing an increase. Yes. So I was, I was so naive when I was hired by Bausch & Lomb because I, was assumed that I, was, I assumed that I was being hired to be the doctor at Bausch & Lomb. And I got to Bausch and Lomb, and I looked around, and we started counting. And Bausch and Lomb had 153 resident-trained optometrists and ophthalmologists working full-time at, at Bausch and Lomb. And so that was really eye-opening as to all the opportunities that there were for optometry in eye care companies. And, and when it comes to uh, getting for op optometrists to kind of get into the innovation or you can get into the, that, the clinical trials part. Uh, one experience that we have is because we have, like Johnson Johnson, a big contact lens division, and all the clinical trials on contact lenses are done by optometry. And so we, what we're finding is that we have this pool of optometrists who know how to do clinical trials, because they've been doing them for contact lenses for all these years, and now, so they now want to make that move into the next step. And they say, okay, we've been doing your contact lens trials. Can we do your pharma trials? Can we get involved in, in other things? And so that's kind of an interesting trend. So that's the next question. Uh, are all, can all optometrists participate in clinical trials? Do they need to have an infrastru infrastructure at their practice? Can, can they be at uh, Pearl Vision and be in clinical trials? So, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in this one. Um, I think the answer is yes. Uh, had opportunity to review all of our um, Opus studies, our Sonata studies, and uh, whether it's Paul, Kelly, um, and, and um, others, I mean, they were all over our, our, our papers, and it clearly shows that optometrists can be involved and be on peer review journals that are published in, in major, major journals. But I think from this perspective, you know, a lot of dear friends have asked me, I want to get involved in trials. And I'll tell them you need to do A, B, and C. And sometimes B and C means an investment, investment in a clinical coordinator, investment in reaching out to a company like Lexitas and, and meeting with Chad and really walking through what it's going to take. It's a significant investment. It's a time investment, but it's innovative. It's all about innovation. You get access to the companies. That's where the new technology is. And then you have the sky. Then you have the horizon of what you can do and it really is taking that first step. And I, and I tell you, you can get involved in clinical trials, you get exposed to the people, you get exposed to the management teams, and very, very good things can happen. But it takes an initial investment. Yeah. I always tell ophthalmologists, and I think it's exactly the same, you have to demonstrate and document that you have the patients and you have the infrastructure, which usually means a trial coordinator 
uh, and enough patients of the given disease that people want to study that you can enroll. And then once you have those two things, people are very interested. Um, so next question, optometry. How do you think you, you have a product that has positive phase three data, you're planning for a launch, and we've touched on this a bit, but how central is optometry to that rollout, to that launch, to that product success? So Dave, from a hour game perspective, when, does that, when do you start talking and thinking about optometry and, and educating optometrists to the results, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, it clearly depends on the, the product launch. Um, so, you know, one of our, our product launches that's coming up in uh, the next couple of years is going to be uh, for a, a drop to treat presbyopia or manage presbyopia. And clearly, um, optometry is going to be central to that. Matter of fact, I think the majority of our efforts will be in, in optometry. Um, so, so, you know, very specific to, to that particular therapy. Um, when we launched uh, Restasis 14, 15 years ago, um, Allergan, I think, made a big mistake in that uh, they didn't equally weigh the efforts in optometry and ophthalmology. And I, I think it is clear by the, the efforts that, that Bob made, Shire made with uh, Zydra, that the outcomes uh, they've had in optometry is really uh, a direct proportion to the amount of effort that they put into optometry. So I really applaud the work that, that, that happened. Um, even though I get the wow factor, uh, I hear about it all the time, by the way, on Restasis. But, but Joe left. Yeah, Joe left. Joe, Joe left. All right, that was your you, Joe. It's a billion dollar drug, so it works on somebody. So, so, so we just went through this because we, we just you know launched by Zolta, and so uh, so when when we were getting ready to launch, what we did was we took Murray and we took Bob Weingram and locked them in a room together and said, okay, you two figure this out. And so this was a this was from um, day one a collaborative effort between optometry and ophthalmology, figuring out what would work in the different channels. And uh, and so then we were you know extremely indebted to, to Murray because Murray kind of showed us the way of how we should go do this for optometry, and then our ophthalmologist kind of you know did it did it that way. So, Angelo, the last word to you. I think for us, what we've done in the past and what we've changed uh, recently is that we create products for ophthalmology and then tried to sell them in optometry. And that's where we failed uh, in many of our high-end devices. And this is where you see a product like Claris, specifically targeted for ODs, specifically targeted for what needs to be done in those practices, and have a completely separate product targeted for ophthalmology and don't mix the two up and give the doctors what they need in their hands to best practice. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the OIS podcast. We hope you enjoyed this discussion from OIS at Seco. If you weren't able to join us in New Orleans, I hope you will join us in San Diego for OIS at ASDRS. It's happening on May 2nd. Go to ois.net, register to attend, or if you're a startup that wants to tell your story, you can register to present. That's it, folks. Tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the OIS podcast.